Happy History Hump Day. It's me, Julian Rushbrook, and this is a History Most Queer. And I've got a little intro here because we're going to be talking about a really interesting subject today, uh, Charlotte von Malsdorf. And I'm talking about her with one of my good friends, Dr. Eric Hunnicky. So stay tuned and listen to our interview, which will be in two parts. So once this episode ends, come again next week to hear the other half. Happy History Hump Day, all of you queer history enthusiasts. I'm Julian Rushbrook, and this is your favorite podcast dealing with queer history, a history most queer. Now today we've got, we've actually got an expert on the show. It's not just this amateur rambling on and on. And so I would like to introduce all of you to Dr. Eric Hunnicky. Hello, everybody. I'm really excited to be part of this podcast, so thank you so much for having me. Okay, so uh, tell tell uh, our listeners a little bit about yourself, Dr. Hunnicky. Yeah, so I grew up in a quaint little town you might have heard of called New York City. Um, I am the son of a German immigrant, and so when I was growing up, I had the opportunity to visit my relatives in Germany, but I was a little reluctant to learn the language. Um, and so for quite some time, I limited my vocabulary to cover my basic necessities. I know how to say yes, no, thank you, and more chocolate milk, please. <laughs> um, and as I uh, went through schooling, I didn't actually have the opportunity to learn German in a formal way uh, until I got to college. And I wound up minoring in German, and I wound up developing through my high school and college time a real interest in history. Um, not because I was really excited about memorizing a bunch of names and dates, but because I like the way the historians think. And uh, I was fortunate enough to have some really inspiring uh, teachers and professors along the way who modeled that way of thinking for me. And so um, I initially was not uh, really comfortable with the idea of looking into LGBTQ plus history per se, uh, because that was something that hadn't been part of my formal education. Uh, and even when it was offered to me in college, I was a little bit reluctant. But um, after spending a couple of years in the quote-unquote real world, uh, I ran back enthusiastically to the comfortable confines of academia, and I decided that I wanted to do some research uh, into German history. I mean, by that point, I had developed better language skills. Um, and that I was particularly interested in looking at what happened in Germany after the Second World War with regard to uh, LGBTQ plus experiences, but also just sexuality and gender more generally, right? Um, in the 1920s, uh, Berlin and other German cities were famous for being a mecca and a haven of sorts, an imperfect one, but they were... Um, you know, they had nightclub scenes and all kinds of different things. They had Magnus Hirschfeld, who was a pioneer in terms of researching and providing a safe space for people who occupied various places along a sexual and gender continuum. 
And I wondered, well, what happened to that uh, in the aftermath of the Nazi regime, but also in, uh, in the aftermath and even during the, the end stages of the Stalinist influence over uh, many parts of Europe, including what would become East Germany. And so that's kind of what launched me into doing this kind of research. You know, I had the original motivation of the family background, slow acquisition of the language skills, and then I identified something where I felt like this is something that is, uh, I'm intrigued by. And so that's part of the reason why I'm talking to your delightful host today. Yay! So that actually kind of works out perfect for this particular episode because we're going to be talking about, and let me, before I even go further, um, I took French. So <laughs> I have done my best when it comes to pronouncing uh, Hindi names and Russian names. So I'm going to slaughter this one. Uh, and I apologize to the entire German-speaking world. <laughs> Uh, so, Charlotte von Molsdorf? Sounds pretty good to me. Okay, okay. All right. So, she actually kind of fits right into this time period. Mm -hmm. uh, she was born on the 18th of March, 1928. So, before the Nazi regime came to power. And she died the 30th of April, 2002. So, well into the reunification of Germany. So, she... She straddles this time period where you've got a rather liberal, queer-friendly Berlin and then a not-so-queer-friendly Berlin, mm -hmm. to you know. So I thought perhaps we could, maybe you could sort of build up some context about what life for LGBTQIA plus people was like mm -hmm. uh, around the time of her birth uh, in 1928. And kind of going into into the the Nazi regime. So in 1928, technically speaking, um, intercourse like acts involving men were illegal, right? There were criminal penalties in place. Um, there were efforts underway, um, particularly supported by the Social Democratic and Communist parties, to repeal or amend that legislation. Um, and in 1929, there was a subcommittee of the German Parliament. Uh, that actually voted in favor of repealing the law. Um, unfortunately, Nazis and their other allies in the legislature prevented that from moving forward. So it's interesting, you know, not only was Germany home to what many argue was the world's first queer rights organization, mm. the Scientific Humanitarian Committee, founded by Magnus Hirschfeld already back in the 1890s, um, but it was also home to a place where, uh, you know, there were efforts underway during the decade of Charlotte Hotelmann's birth to actually fundamentally change the criminal code. Um, now, when the Nazis took power in 1933, ironically enough, uh, those very same social democrats and communists who had advocated decriminalizing same-gender acts involving men wound up latching on to a stereotype of the Nazis as having uh, being a, a safe haven, a harbor for queer men in particular. Because in the 1920s, there were different ways of sort of inhabiting queerness, particularly for men. On the one hand, uh, there was a model that embraced kind of uh, gender nonconformity uh, in terms of how queer men might uh, enact their gender identity in public. Um, there was uh, Magnus Hirschfeld who had come up with the idea of sexual intermediary stages where he recognized 
that gender identity and sexual orientation were not a clear binary, but that many people found themselves at many stages on a continuum. Um, Wait, let me stop you there. Yeah. So you're saying mm -hmm. that the concept of the gender binary not being a binary did not happen in 2020? <laughs> yeah. Crazy. I mean, yeah. And, and I'm not saying, I mean, there is a wonderful book that was written by Laurie Marhofer, which kind of complicates the legacy of Hirschfeld, particularly with respect to his assumptions regarding race and ethnicity. So he was also a product of his time in a variety of ways that we might not necessarily consider to be progressive. But when it comes to rethinking uh, what exactly gender and sexuality entail, he and, and the people that he worked with, fellow doctors and scientists, as well as the people who came to his Institute for Sexual Research, which was the first of its kind established after the First World War in Berlin, they really did an incredible service uh, in terms of providing an archive, if you will, uh, for this kind of stuff to be explored and it talked about in new ways. So when the Nazis took power, as I was saying, the uh, Social Democrats and Communists actually uh, latched onto this idea that Nazis were, in fact, um, harboring gay men, and not the gay men who had typically found a safe haven with Magnus Hirschfeld, because not Magnus Hirschfeld not only represented um, aspects of gender and sexuality that were contrary to traditional norms, but as a Jewish person, he was not exactly someone that the Nazis were a big fan of, to put it very <laughs> mildly. Um, but there was another strand of gay male identity in the 1920s, um, whereby there was this notion that gay men, because they weren't sort of associating with women or having to do things that were pleasing to women, actually embodied a more pure ideal of masculinity. And so for some of those people, they really liked the idea of what some scholars have called the trenchocracy. So the idea of a brotherhood amongst men that established itself in the World War I experience and then kind of manifested itself in a variety of spheres after the First World War. So that could be like German nationalist organizations where masculinity was an important part of that national identity. It could even be seemingly more apolitical groups like you know hiking groups where there was this emphasis on male bonding and connection with nature. So, so there were a lot of ways in which the Nazis um, were accused of kind of like co-opting that more masculinist uh, gay male kind of community or, or sense of identity. And they weren't entirely wrong, right? There was a very prominent gay man named Ernst Blum, uh, and it was widely known that he uh, had relationships of a sexual nature with men. And he wound up leading uh, the SA, which was one of the paramilitary organizations. Now, in 1934, there was this event called the Night of the Long Knives, whereby Hitler did some house cleaning, um, <laughs> and he decided that he would send a clear message that he would not tolerate dissent or potential opposition in his own ranks. And so he um, uh, eff effectively ordered the murder of Lerm and many others. And the official reason was because Lerm was potentially uh, disloyal in his capacity and had the ability with his paramilitary at his disposal to act upon that. But uh, I think scholars have also said that it was to send a message that, in fact, the Nazis would not be a safe haven for queer people of any sort. By 1935, uh, the Nazi regime uh, changed paragraph 175, which was the law that I alluded to earlier that dealt with same gender acts, and they made it far more all-encompassing so that it wasn't just intercourse-like acts, which was a kind of a euphemism for sodomy or anal intercourse, 
um, but that people could be found guilty of it for just non-sexual, as I might just call them, public displays of affection in terms of holding hands or a peck on the cheek. And so during the course of the Nazi regime, you know, many uh, people were arrested under this law, as many as 100,000 gay men who had served their prison terms or other punishments were then transferred to concentration camps to continue serving out their uh, sentences, if you will. And depending upon which figures you look at, 10 to 15,000 of them perished as part of that experience. Now, the Nazis weren't exactly sure what made someone gay, right? They actually uh, were interested in doing research on uh, this question. Uh, are you born that way, or is it something that you somehow become as a result of societal or other influences? And part of that research, in a more informal way, took place in some of these concentration camps that housed men who had slept with other men, and they were basically told, well, um, if you sleep satisfactorily with a woman, oftentimes a sex worker who was uh, on the premises, uh, then you are not really gay, and uh, we will release you from this camp, typically to work in like munitions factories or be sent off to the front, so it wasn't exactly a <laughs> beautiful alternative. <laughs> but nonetheless, um, it was interesting that for the Nazis, if you were Jewish, you were Jewish because that was a racial category. Regardless of whether you practice your religion, if you converted to another religion, that was something that could not be changed. Whereas it seems as if the Nazis felt that with respect to um, same gender sexuality in, in terms of orientation, that is something that was amenable to change. And it also is reflected in how they did not ever officially include lesbianism in their revision paragraph, paragraph 175, although they did use uh, other kind of statutes, especially those pertaining to asocial or people who didn't conform to social norms, to um, persecute and, and uh, intern uh, lesbians and gender nonconforming individuals. So that's kind of, you know, we went from the 1920s, where at least in certain metropolitan areas, there seemed to be unprecedented places for people to engage themselves politically as well as socially in developing a community of people who. Um, celebrated uh, the challenging of sexual and gender norms to a period where uh, the Nazis were kind of trying to clamp down on that. They viewed that as part of the decadence of German society that they uh, felt it was their duty to counteract. And, um, but ironically, even they themselves had at least initially been tarred with the brush of being part of the problem, if you will, in terms of being that haven. After the war was over, it was uh, you know, even though certainly a difficult process, but victims of Nazism uh, eventually wound up being able to claim some sort of restitution or recognition for that status. Um, and that was not the case for the gay men in particular, but any people who have been persecuted on the basis of gender or sexuality for many decades thereafter. And for, in fact, it's just in the last decade or so that the German parliament has officially offered an apology acknowledging responsibility on the part of the government for those acts. Um, and that's because the law that criminalized um, gay male sexual activity in particular was still on the books. But by 1949-1950, there were different versions of that law on the books. So in West Germany, the capitalist uh, democratic Germany, they actually retained the more stringent Nazi version of the law from 1935. Whereas the East Germans, actually reverted to the earlier version of law that was less stringent. And so one of the ironies that is pointed out by historian Samuel Klaus Hunicki is that 
East Germany, which is generally seen as the repressive dictatorial state, seems to have been less intent upon repressing or persecuting people on behalf of their sexuality than West Germany was, particularly in the 1950s. Um, I looked at some details where I was trying to figure out the numbers of people who were being repressed and eventually or arrested, and eventually they stopped itemizing different kinds of sexual offenses. So uh, it's possible there are other records out there, but I wasn't able to find a definitive paper trail for that. But um, so the post-war climate was not one where it was possible for people to claim having been victimized and very difficult to be able to claim uh, gender queerness or uh, a queer sexuality as being a positive part of their identity that should in fact be celebrated and recognized. And that's why Charlotte von Mausdorff is such an interesting individual because she is someone who seems to have taken it upon herself to try to do that in some way, shape or form, even though, as far as I know, she did not necessarily want to be known, even after the fact, as someone who might be what we would now call transgender, right? Her act mm -hmm. was one of cross-dressing, so one of the categories Hirschfeld had talked about was so-called transvestiten or transvestites, which I realize is now an outdated and for some offensive term. But for her, that was the, that was the subject position that she could inhabit, and that was actually possible for her to inhabit, right? To be able to live, um, you know, her original birth name was Lothar Befelde, but to be able to live and be recognized using the name Charlotte von Mazdorf and presenting in public wearing conventionally feminine garb. Um, I think that, that that was interesting in and of itself that that was possible. And it might also cause us to question some of the blanket assertions that I just made about how possible it was in the post-war period to kind of live a life that challenged gender and sexual norms. She was born in uh, 1928, and I've got a little thing here that says that, you know, even as a child, she claims to have felt more like a girl and, you know, liked playing with dolls or, or wearing girls' clothing um, and so on. But something that I thought was really interesting um, is that as a child, she helped a secondhand goods dealer clearing out the homes of Jews who had been deported mm -hmm. um, to camps or, or to ghettos. I'm not sure what exact time period. Um, and some of the items that she helped with, she might have just sort of snuck out and kept herself. Yeah. And is this where her desire to collect, and I'm going to mess up the pronunciation of this, mm -hmm. Grunderzeit, mm -hmm. German Empire pieces. Yeah. <laughs> so that's part of her legacy as well. I mean, one of the reasons why we uh, know about aspects of her life beyond what the official public record might entail, like a lot of times when we're doing queer history, we have to rely upon records created by, you know, police or other observational entities. And in the context of East Germany, where Charlotte von Mazdorf made her home, actually the secret police records can be very enlightening. But she also wrote her own autobiography called I Am My Own Wife. And there is a Broadway play of the same name that we can talk about later. But getting back to uh, this particular question, yeah, one of the things that, uh, that she made her mark with was effectively establishing, convincing the East German authorities to give her a villa. Um, because East German authorities, generally speaking, were trying to move away from what they saw as the capitalist bourgeois past mm. um, in terms of 
you know, buildings, uh, but uh, also just what you used in everyday life. So the kind of furniture that you used, the kind of utensils that you used, and there was a, an emphasis on kind of more functional, modern, plastic uh, <laughs> types of things, and, and, and viewing kind of frou-frou um, furniture and other things that had less quote-unquote functional designs as being undesirable. And so one of the things that Mazdorf or Charlotte did was to collect uh, some of this material, uh, especially uh, trying to salvage it from what had been taken from Jewish homes, and after the war to establish a what was effectively a museum devoted to... So Gründerzeit is a fancy word for foundational period. So the Germany as we know it today, its boundaries are close to what they were when they were established as the German Empire in 1871, and 1890s were seen as kind of a heyday of, of developing... German culture, right? Germans were feeling we've kind of finally caught up with our competitors in France and Britain with respect to industrialization and technology, and so there was a kind of um, a positive spirit associated with that. So yeah, so so part of the reason why she even had a space, and this will be instrumental for my later chronicle of her life, that she had a space to be able to have people meet in was because she had this museum, and she was cognizant of the fact that she could do something about making sure that certain aspects of the German past, this particular era of furniture production, but also the fact that it had belonged to these families that had been persecuted and expropriated from, that she could do something about that. And I think that's really valuable. That's interesting. So she wasn't stealing. I mean, it depends I mean, on how you child. define it, right? <laughs> because in the, in the time of the Nazi expropriation of, of uh, property, you know, there's a historian who's made the case that one of the reasons why many non-Jewish Germans support the Nazis is because they benefited financially mm. from, by getting jobs that Jews were kicked out of or could no longer apply for, and, quite frankly, by looting their apartments. Now, as someone who, of her age, who would have been not quite an adult yet, we can ask about the question of how much she was aware of what she was doing as being quote-unquote wrong, but um, to the extent that she then tried to use whatever she got by whatever means we might want to call it, to be able to celebrate this period. Um, I don't know how much in the museum itself she was you know, consciously trying to say this is from this household in terms of acknowledging mm. the people whose property was put on display there. Um, that would be actually a more appropriate way of acknowledging where she might have gotten it from and whose property it quote-unquote really was. But you know, the question of restitution in, in the area of museums is <laughs> a very fraught one. Um, but yeah, I, I think that I cannot speak to whether or not she got all of the things by quote-unquote legitimate means, but I, I can speak to uh, that she tried, I think, to provide a space for this material culture to still have a place in East Germany. Into it, how was life for queer people different in East versus West Germany? Yeah. Um, I read that, and you kind of mentioned that set of laws, that paragraph... 175? 175, mm -hmm. yeah. Um was altered in one place versus the other. Um, so, ap after the fall of the Third Reich, uh, what was it like for queer people in these now two Germanys? Yeah, so one of the things is that, um, and Clayton Wisnant was a historian who really did a lot to sort of get this conversation going in the English-speaking world. So despite the ongoing uh, criminalization of queer sexuality, particularly for those identifying as male, um, there was already in the 1950s an attempt to revive some of the culture of, of Germany in the 1920s. So there appeared um, some publications uh, that were 
uh, by and for um, queer audiences. Um, there was a, a sexual researcher named Hans Giese who claimed to want to perpetuate the legacy of Magnus Hirschfeld. He didn't quite do it. Um, so back in uh, 1919, uh, there was a play called Different Than the uh, Play. There was a movie called Different Than the Others. It's believed to be the first feature film that uh, sort of thematizes queer sexuality in an intentional and a, and a positive way. And it's a story of a school teacher who is being blackmailed for having had a relationship with one of his students. And Hirschfeld actually, in the fragment of the film that we have remaining, which was located in the Ukrainian archive, I didn't mention earlier that one of the things that the Nazis did after they took power in 1934 was a massive book burning that eradicated a lot of the archive that Hirschfeld had established in the Institute for Sexual Science. In any event, Hirschfeld had appeared in this film as kind of expert witness, and the, and the film was trying to send the message that this law criminalizing uh, sexuality amongst gay men, as we might call them now, was destroying people's lives, right? It wasn't actually saving society from anything. It didn't serve any positive purpose. It was giving blackmailers an opportunity to make money off of poor, hapless, defenseless individuals. And so he was trying to spread a message of tolerance and of uh, changing the laws. In the 1950s, there was a remake of this film, and Hans Giese was now the scientific consultant or expert. And instead of the film ending with a sort of plea for tolerance of sexual difference, it instead is sort of a story of a guy who supposedly was led astray by this older individual who is not portrayed in a favorable light. Uh, so older man seducing a younger man. And when he finally meets the right girl or realizes that that's what he should be doing, then he kind of comes over to the side of heterosexuality. And so Giza was someone who had been, um, who on the one hand seemed to be trying to advance the conversation about decriminalizing homosexuality, but did so from a more conservative standpoint. And it's important to bear in mind that people who advocated for decriminalizing homosexuality in the 1960s in Germany had a lot of different motives for doing so on both sides of the divide, right? Um, some people felt it's just not the job of the government to be uh, governing morality, that that's something that churches or people should decide for themselves. Some people felt that homosexuality was an illness and they were hoping that that could be cured by scientific advances. Um, in East Germany, there was an ideological argument that homosexuality was a remnant of decadent capitalism and that as capitalism wound up fading by the wayside, that homosexuality itself would no longer be part of society, that it would be replaced by um, heterosexuality. So there's a lot of different motivations that came into play. Um, what this meant in terms of everyday life is that there was an attempt to recreate safe spaces, but those spaces were, uh, it was it seemingly more difficult to actually create them or, or maintain their integrity than it had been in the 1920s. Um, and but I, you know, there's some new work out, I haven't had the chance to read it yet, by, by Andrea Rotman, uh, which is looking at this question of everyday life and how much were people able to live their own lives. And this is not unique to Germany, right? If you look at other parts of the world, uh, there were people who lived in the closet, there was the lavender scare in the United States uh, that uh, made people lose their jobs because of actual or, or imputed homosexual identity or activities. So this isn't just a German thing, but I think what made it unique in Germany was how it was related to the inability to talk publicly about what had gone on under Nazi auspices and what ramifications that should have after the war. Now, fast forward to 1968, East Germany actually wound up uh, changing paragraph 175. They had a new criminal code. They changed the number of the law. 
And so they made it so that they decriminalized consensual acts amongst adult men, but they had a higher age of consent for same gender acts than they did for opposite gender acts. They raised it to 21 to protect youth who might be potentially seduced. There was still that thinking behind it. <laughs> um, and they also subsequently wound up supporting the work of a scientist named Grimta Dona, who wound up trying to come up with a hormonal intervention in the womb that would prevent people from being, being gay. He experimented on rats and tried to prevent gay rats from being born. So um, in the West, uh, West Germany, uh, they wound up changing the law in 1969, but in neither case did they fully remove any kind of sanction, and it was only in 1994, after Germany reunified, that paragraph 175 was definitively removed from the books, um, and there was parity in terms of the age of consent. So the question of everyday life in the 50s and 60s, um, you know, I talked to a guy in East Germany who was in the German military in the early 19s, Eastern military in the early 1960s, and for him, um, the climate of not being able to talk about homosexuality actually had some positive sides because he was able to cultivate intimate and sexual relationships with people who might never have wanted to identify themselves as gay or queer, but because they either didn't know about that labels or because that was so infrequently talked about, there was actually a little bit more room for sexual experimentation or people to sort of doing things that didn't necessarily accord with a specific role. And that's something that's also mm -hmm. not unique to Germany, right? So, so on the one hand, you could say that a climate where you can't talk about these identities or where it's difficult to do so can be one in which people feel repressed and people aren't able to cultivate communities. But paradoxically, it can also have a different effect where it can actually enable people to cultivate intimate or sexual relationships with people without feeling like they are labeled as being gay or queer. And that might actually, for some people, be seen as a positive or liberating thing. By the late 1960s, you know, uh, the Stonewall uh, Rebellion um, in 1969 in New York, that had a really big effect in, uh, globally. And so by the 1970s, uh, there were many efforts underway in West Germany to kind of create a German version of gay liberationism. Um, and there were a number of cities that developed such movements. They had parades that were named after Christopher Street, which is where Stonewall is located. In East Germany, it wasn't possible to have a parade um, because of restrictions on people convening in public and creating organizations. But nonetheless, there were efforts underway to create kind of their own gay liberationist movements that were much more open, much more loud and proud. You know, the idea we're here, we're queer, get used to it kind of sensibility. Um, and they found ways to try to create their own version of that kind of culture. And Charlotte of Malmstorff is actually a very important figure in that. Hmm. What exactly was her contribution to queer life in East Germany? So um, with regard to um, queer life in East Germany, Charlotte von Mahnersdorf uh, made the acquaintance in the 1970s of a guy named Peter Rausch. And Peter Rausch was one of the co-founders of a group uh, called the Homosexual Initiative in Berlin, um, HIB for short. And this was essentially an attempt to create an East German version of kind of a gay liberationist movement. Now, because it was not possible to really have a private organization that was not under state auspices, um, there was a question about where would this group even be able to meet or could it meet? And so Charlotte von Mahnsdorf basically offered her museum uh, for this foundation, founding period furniture, which also kind of had a bar area, which had been a meeting area. And by the way, one of the things that Charlotte von Mahnsdorf comments on in her memoir 
is that even though the state did not officially want there to be quote-unquote gay bars in East Germany, that there were bars that catered to a queer clientele that kind of operated under the radar um, in the 50s and 60s. But getting back to her contribution, so she eff effectively provided a space, and this worked out for a few years, um, and as a matter of fact, I saw some documentation from some of the founders of the Homosexual Initiative Berlin where they, you know, relied upon a professional expert witness and they were trying to convince the East German government to give them official recognition. So I think that he emboldened the people in this group to try to make claims for having the right to have an organization just as their counterparts in West Germany did. The East German government did not recognize them as an official organization, but interestingly enough, um, in the late 1970s, the East German government signed an agreement uh, with the Protestant churches in particular, whereby they kind of agreed to disagree and to recognize kind of separate spheres. And what that meant is that the Protestant churches in particular uh, wound up serving as a safe haven for a variety of oppositional movements uh, that met under the auspices of the church, and they were protected from state involvement to some degree. I mean, there was still secret police Stasi involvement there as well. But um, And so there were you know, what we might call feminist organizations, um, anti-nuclear pacifist organizations, as well as gay and lesbian. And I use those terms advisedly because LGBTQ or queer were not necessarily part of the vocabulary at the time that met under the auspices of the church. And, and so some church officials weren't that thrilled about it. But, um, but it's interesting that some form of organizational queer life did exist. And if we fast forward to the late 1980s, the East German government actually started changing its tune, uh, whereby it sort of tried to, like, uh, in 1987, there was an organization called the Sonntagsklub established in East Berlin, the Sunday Club, and it was supposed to be a community center, if you will, for uh, gay men and lesbians in particular, uh, but LGBTQ plus people more generally. Um, and it was kind of a, a belated recognition that maybe if queer people were actually devoted socialists, they would be supportive of a regime that many people didn't like or were resentful <laughs> of, and that maybe the regime should capitalize upon that. You know, back in the early 70s, there was an international youth festival in Berlin, and there was East German, uh, excuse me, a British activist, Peter Tatchell, who's still active today, and he came, and he actually, uh, with a bunch of East Germans, held up a banner, and I'm paraphrasing, but it said something like, homosexuals for socialism or something along these lines to send the message that we're not the enemy right we actually like the idea of socialism and so why are you preventing us from demonstrating or contributing to the cause so um and by 1989 um there was a film produced with official recognition called coming out um and it was about a, a, a school teacher that was produced in east german official uh, film studios a school teacher who was basically fired for being gay, and the film is a very sympathetic portrayal of uh, the fact that that was not fair, and his sort of grappling with his own identity. Uh, the person I talked about earlier who had sort of been a member of the East German military, he did interviews with gay men in the 1970s in East Germany, and he tried for a decade to get those published, and by the end of the decade, as East Germany was facing its demise with the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, that did actually get published uh, before the, the wall fell. Uh, the coming out movie itself was premiered on November 9th, 1989, which was a momentous day because that's when the Berlin Wall, in fact, started coming down. And so there weren't too many people who showed up for the movie premiere because they had somewhere else to be. 
Um, but well, yeah. I wonder if Charlotte maybe hosted an after party. Or Perhaps. I, I would have to do more research in terms of what role she played in that moment. So I think that she, you know, she did help to create a space that she's not necessarily directly responsible for all this, but I think that created uh, the wherewithal for some of these people to be able to feel like they could assert themselves, uh, that they did not have to be cowering in the shadows or remain in the closet. And um, so that was great. So what that meant is that after the wall came down, in the early 1990s, you know, she actually was recognized for that, right? She got um, the Bundesverdienstkreuz, which is a federal recognition for uh, merit um, for the role that she had played in terms of fostering the queer community in East Germany. Um, it was only after she received that recognition, however, that it became clear that one of the conditions of her even being able to have this space was that she was an informant for the secret police. Um, and, you know, there's a play that was premiered on Broadway in 2004-ish by an American playwright, Doug Wright, who talked to Charlotte von Mahlstahl, um and, and actually performed this play from the standpoint of her as well as other individuals in her life. And um, her involvement with the secret police predated this. Um, there was a time, apparently, when it's not clear whether she and a man with whom she might have been romantically involved were selling cuckoo clocks to American soldiers who hopped over into the eastern Berlin zone. And so by some accounts, uh, she was, you know, uh, throwing him under the bus. And by other accounts, she had been kind of monitoring him for years, but not really providing actionable information to the secret police. There were a lot of East Germans who participated in the activities of the secret police. Um, it was, the, in terms of per capita, like people who were officially or unofficially involved, it had a higher density of involvement than the Nazi Gestapo had. Um, and people participated for a variety of reasons. For some people in a place where there weren't democratic elections as we understand them in the United States today, uh, with an asterisk there, um, <laughs> this was a way to tell state officials something that they were listening to, right, in a way to sort of express things. So sometimes people joined because they had a grudge on their neighbor and this was a good way of acting upon that. Some people joined because they were true believers in the cause and they wanted to eradicate threats to the political system. But some people joined because they actually saw this as a way to make their voices heard to the government. I can't speak to all of Charlotte von Mazda's motivations and I um, do not condone those activities if she was doing so with malicious intent and in ways that could have caused or did cause um, harmful consequences for those that she was reporting on. But what I can say is that um, she was not alone in doing so, and the period during which this information came out was a very difficult period because there were a number of people who learned that their own friends, family members, teachers, even pastors might have been uh, informants and basically feeding information about them. So it was part of a larger kind of hand-wringing in post-East uh, German, uh, post-unification German society about the legacies of the secret police, about the legacies and the rationales behind collaboration. So for me, I celebrate the contributions that she made to making queer culture possible, while I also recognize the sacrifices and the dubious moral choices that she apparently made along the way for, for that to happen. I mean, it, it's also very possible that she was maybe a little scared and felt for, to, to keep herself sure. and possibly these other queer people yeah. safe. and that is a good you point know. that people might have also felt pressured into becoming mm -hmm. informants and were not doing so entirely of their own volition. So that's a good, that's a fair point. It's definitely gray. <laughs> yeah, gray area. Yeah, definitely, are, are, it's a complicated issue, and I think that 
you know, ultimately she wound up leaving Germany. She wound up moving to Sweden. Um, and um, she, um, so I think that she felt that it was no longer possible to live there because of the pressures associated with people condemning or questioning her. Um, so yeah. I think mm -hmm. that she did pay one more visit to Germany shortly prior to her death, um, but uh, yeah. Hmm. All right, I hope that all of you found the first half of Charlotte von Malsdorf's life to be an interesting episode. Come back next week and we'll have part two and we'll extend this Trans History Month celebration by an extra week. So that'll be fun. Hope to see you next time. Have a great week. Bye-bye. Woo! <laughs>